Preface to the Second Edition of Hands of Iceland by Victor Hugo, translated by Abby Langdon Alger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sonia. Preface to the Second Edition. The author has been informed that a brief preface or introduction to this second edition of his book is absolutely essential. In vain he declared that the four or five paragraphs which escorted the first edition, and with which the publisher persisted in disfiguring it, had already drawn down upon his head the anathemas of one of the most distinguished and honourable of French writers, who accused him of assuming the sour tones of the illustrious Jedediah Clashbottom, schoolmaster and sexton of the parish of Ganderclue. In vain he alleged that this brilliant and sensible critic, from dealing severely with an error, would doubtless become merciless upon a repetition of the same mistake. In a word, he presented countless equally good reasons for declining to fall into the trap. But better ones must have been brought to bear against them, since he is now writing a second preface, after so bitterly repenting that he wrote the first. While executing this bold resolve, his first thought was to open the second edition with those general and particular views on the subject of romance writing with which he dared not burden the first. Lost in meditations on this literary and didactic treatise, he was still a prey to that strange intoxication of composition, that brief instant when the author, feeling that he is about to grasp an ideal perfection, which, alas, he can never reach, is thrilled with delight at his task. He was, as we say, enjoying that period of mental ecstasy when labour is a delight, when the secret possession of the muse seems sweeter than the dazzling pursuit of fame, when one of his wisest friends waked him suddenly from his dream, his ecstasy, his intoxication, by assuring him that several very great popular and influential men of letters considered the dissertation which he was preparing utterly flat, insipid and unnecessary, that the painful apostleship of criticism with which they were charged in various public pages, imposing upon them the mournful duty of pitilessly hunting down the monster of romanticism and bad taste, they were even then busily preparing for certain enlightened and impartial journals a conscientious analytical and spicy criticism of the aforesaid forthcoming dissertation. Upon hearing this terrible news, the poor author, obstupuit, steterunke comae, et vox faucibus heisit, that is to say, nothing remained but to leave in the limbo whence he was about to rescue it, the essay, Virgin and Yet Unborn, as Jean-Jacques Rousseau has it, of which such just and such severe critics had fallen foul. His friend advised him to replace it by a few simple preliminary remarks from the publishers, as he could very properly put into those gentlemen's mouth all the sweet nothings which so delicately tickle an author's ear. Nay, he even offered him certain models, taken from highly successful works, some beginning with the words, the immense popular success of this book, etc., others thus, the European fame which this work has won, etc., or, it is now superfluous to praise this book since popular opinion declares that no praise can equal its merit, etc. Although these various formulae, according to the discreet adviser, were not without their attested virtues, the author did not feel sufficient humility and paternal indifference to expose his work to the disappointment or the demands of the reader, who should parouse these magnificent apologies, nor sufficient effrontery to imitate those rustic mountebanks who attract the curious public by displaying a painted crocodile upon a curtain, behind which, on paying their fee, they find nothing but a lizard. He therefore rejected the idea of sounding his own praises through the obliging lips of his publishers.
His friend then suggested that he should put into the mouth of his villainous Icelandic outlaw, by way of a passport, phrases suited to popularize him and render him congenial with the age, such as delicate jests directed against the nobility, bitter sarcasms upon the clergy, ingenious invectives against nuns, monks, and other monsters of the social order. The author asked nothing better, but it scarcely seemed to him that nobles and monks had any very direct connection with the work in hand. He might, it is true, have borrowed other colors from the same palette, and thrown together a few highly philanthropic pages, in which, always keeping at a prudent distance from the dangerous shoals hidden under the waters of philosophy, and known as the shoals of the court of misdemeanors, he might have advanced certain of those truths discovered by the wise for the glory of mankind and the consolation of the dying, namely, that man is but a brute, that the soul is a gas of greater or less density, and that God is nothing. But he thought these incontestable truths very trivial and very hackneyed, and he could scarcely add a drop to the deluge of reasonable morality, atheistic religion, maxims, doctrines, and principles with which we have been flooded for our good for thirty years, in so monstrous a fashion that we might, if it be not irreverent, apply Renier's verses on a shower. From out the clouds the rains in such vast torrents pour, that thirsty dogs can drink, and not their foreheads lower. Moreover, these lofty themes had no very visible connection with the subject of his story, and he might have been puzzled to find any bond of union leading up to it although the art of transitions has been singularly simplified, since so many great men have discovered the secret of passing from a stable to a palace direct, and of exchanging without incongruity the policeman's cap for the civic crown. Recognizing, therefore, that neither his talent nor his learning, neither his wings nor his beak, as the ingenious Arab poet has it, could furnish him with a preface which would interest his readers, the author resolved merely to offer them a serious and frank account of the improvements introduced in this second edition. He must first inform them that the words second edition are incorrect, and that the term first edition should really be applied to this reprint, inasmuch as the four variously sized bundles of greyish paper, blotted with black and white, which the indulgent public has hitherto kindly consented to consider as the four volumes of Hands of Iceland, were so disfigured with typographic errors by a barbarous printer that the wretched author, on looking over his own production, altered as it was beyond all recognition, was perpetually subjected to the torments of a father whose child returns to him mutilated and tattooed by the hand of an Iroquois from Lake Ontario. For instance, the type turned a lion's voice into a line, robbed the Dovrefjeld mountains of their peaks and bestowed upon them feet, and when the Norse fishers hoped to moor their boats in various creeks, the printer drove them upon bricks. Not to weary the reader, the author will pass by in silence all the outrages of this kind, which his wounded memory recalls, manet alto in pectore vulnus. Suffice it to say that there is no grotesque image, no strange meaning, no absurd idea, no confused figure, no burlesque hieroglyph, which the sedulously stupid ignorance of this enigmatical proofreader did not make him utter. Alas, every one who ever printed a dozen lines, were it only an invitation to a wedding or a funeral, will feel the deep bitterness of such a sorrow. The proofs of this reprint have accordingly been read with sedulous care, and the author now ventures to hope, in which he is sustained by one or two close friends, that this Romans redivivus is worthy to figure among those splendid writings before which the eleven stars bow low 
as before the sun and moon. Should journalists accuse him of making no corrections, he will take the liberty of sending them the proof-sheets of this regenerate work, blackened by minute scrutiny, for it is averred that there is more than one doubting Thomas among them. The kindly reader will also observe that several dates have been corrected, historical notes added, one or two chapters enriched with new mottoes. In a word, he will find on every page changes whose extreme importance is to be measured only by that of the entire book. An impertinent adviser desired a translation in footnotes of all the Latin phrases with which the learned Spiagodry sprinkles the book. For the comprehension, adds this personage, of those masons, tinkers, or hairdressers who edit certain journals wherein Hands of Iceland may chance to be reviewed. The author's anger at such insidious counsel may be imagined. He instantly begged to inform the would-be joker that all journalists, without distinction, are mirrors of courtesy, wisdom, and good faith, and requested him not to insult him by believing him to be one of those ungrateful citizens who are ever ready to address those dictators of taste and genius in this poor verse of an old poet. Keep your own skins, my friend, nor other folk condemn. For he is far from thinking that the lion's skin is not the true skin of those popular gentlemen. Still another friend implored him, for he must conceal nothing from his readers, to put his name on the title page of this story, hitherto the neglected child of an unknown father. It must be owned that beyond the pleasure of seeing the half-dozen capital letters which spell out one's name printed in fine black characters upon smooth white paper, there is also a certain charm in displaying it in solitary grandeur upon the back of the cover, as if the work which it adorns, far from being the only monument of the author's genius, were but one of the columns in the imposing temple wherein his genius is some day to spread its wings, but a slight specimen of his hidden talent and his unpublished glory. It proves that at least he hopes to be a noted and admired writer some day. To triumph over this fresh temptation, the author was forced to muster all his fears, lest he should never break through the crowd of scribblers, who, even though they waive their anonymity, must ever remain unknown. As for the hint thrown out by certain amateurs with very delicate ears regarding the uncouth harshness of his Norwegian names, he considers it well founded. He therefore proposes, so soon as he shall be made a member of the Royal Society at Stockholm or the Bergen Academy, to invite the Norwegians to change their language, inasmuch as the hideous jargon, which they are whimsical enough to employ, wounds the ears of Parisian ladies, and their outlandish names, as rugged as their rocks, produce the same effect upon the sensitive tongue that utters them, as their bear's grease and bark bread would probably have upon the delicate nervous filaments of our palate. It only remains for him to thank the few persons who have been good enough to read his book through, as is proved by the really tremendous success which it has won. He also expresses his gratitude to those of his fair readers who, he is assured, have formed a certain ideal of the author of Hands of Iceland from his book. He is vastly flattered that they should attribute to him red hair, a shaggy beard, and fierce eyes. He is overcome with confusion that they should condescend to do him the honour to suppose that he never cuts his nails but he entreats them on his knees to rest assured that he never carries his ferocity so far as to devour little children alive. Moreover, all these facts will become fixed when his renown has reached the level of that of the authors of Lolotte and Fanfan, or of Monsieur Bott, men of transcendent genius, twins alike in talent and in taste, Arcades Ambu, and when his portrait, Terribiles Visu Formae, and his biography, Domestica Facta, 
are prefixed to his works. He was about to close this long epistle when his publisher, on the point of sending the book to the reviews, requested that he would add a few complimentary notices of his own work, adding to remove all the author's scruples that his writing should not be the means of compromising him, as he would copy these articles himself. This last remark struck the author as extremely touching, since it seems that in this most luminous age every man considers it his duty to enlighten his neighbour as to his own qualities and personal perfections, concerning which none can be so well informed as their possessor. As, moreover, this last temptation is a strong one, the author thinks it his duty, in case he should yield to it, to warn the public not to believe more than half of what the press may say of his work. April 1823 End of Preface to the Second Edition